Okay, the story begins. Welcome, everybody. We are on chapter 52. We're near the end for 53 chapters. We're on chapter 52, page 657. We're going to split this chapter into probably two or three parts. Starting from chapter 50, we've been on this quest, maybe 51, we've been on this quest to figure out what Shekhinah is, what God's divine presence is. When we say this is where God's presence is, what does that even mean? Right? Isn't God everywhere? And, and if, if he's everywhere, then why do I need to be active or proactive in making him more present in my life? We gave the analogy or the parallel of the human, right? People were made in the image of God. So there's a lot we can learn about God from our own selves. And we gave the analogy of how the soul pervades the entire body, just like God is everywhere. But where is the soul most experienced? We said in the brain. And from the brain, that experience, the tangible, aspect of the soul is going to extend to the rest of the body right the brain controls everything a healthy brain is a healthy person because it all comes from the brain and the same is with god god is everywhere there's no place where he is not but where can you most experience god in the world or in any world, in any realm of existence, where can you most experience God? Well, look at the body, look at the person. Where are you gonna most experience the soul? The brain. Where are you gonna most experience God? His brain. What does that mean? What is his brain? What is the brain of God? Okay, let's read it inside. Let's let the Tanya tell us. Take a look on 657. It's the bottom paragraph, the bold paragraph. We got it? Okay. And just as with a person's soul, the primary emergence of its total energy, before that energy act, act, bleh, actually enters any limbs or organs, is in the brain. And all the body parts receive a mere flow of light and power from that total energy, which shines to them from the source of manifest total soul energy in the brain. The same is true precisely, figuratively speaking, sounds like a contradiction there, with God. Namely, the primary manifestation of the total energy, top of 658, that flows to the worlds and their inhabitants is found before it reaches them, absorbed and expressed within God's will, his chachma, bina, and da'as, um, which are called in Kabbalah the divine brain. Chachma, bina, and da'as. Do those terms sound familiar? Chabad. Right? Chabad. That's the acronym of Chabad. Chachma Binadas. Those are the three intellectual faculties. Those are the three parts of the brain. Chachma is the openness to something bigger than ourselves. Bina is our ability to process what we're open to. Da'as, translated as knowledge, wisdom, understanding, and knowledge, is the da'as is the ability to apply that item, that idea, that concept that we process. It's just like it's we as I say, there's an acronym in English too, WAC, not woke, but WAC, wisdom, understanding, knowledge. 
There we go. Wisdom. Okay. Walk. Like a walk, right? That's why Jews like Chinese food because the walk. <laughs> um, so just like human beings, we have wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. We have the ability to be open-minded to new ideas. We have the ability to process those ideas intellectually. We have the ability to emotionally apply those ideas. Similarly, God has a brain. And although God is everywhere, where you will most experience him is the brain. What is the brain of God? Anybody know what the brain of God refers to? The brain of I mean, God. As in, as in like a physical? Metaphorically. Metaphorically physical um, part of the body? So the, the brain, when we say God's brain, we're referring to the Torah. Because the Torah... Yeah! <laughs> there we go <laughs> you got so the the torah is the wisdom of god the torah is divine wisdom so you'll most just like you'll most experience the person right if you want to get to know a person you could observe them you could watch what they do you could see what they look like but if you really want to get to know them you sit down you have a conversation with them and you understand their values, you understand their thought process, you understand how they think, you understand their desires. So if we want to get to know God, to see how he's really present, well, he's everywhere. So I can go to the woods and to the forest and meditate on him because he's there. He's everywhere. And that's powerful. I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not knocking that God forbid. But if you really want to get to know him, um, learn about him. Learn what his learn learn his values. Learn his thought process. Learn what he learn his desires. That's what the Torah is. Take a look on the um, the middle of six fifty eight. It's it's a two liner bold uh, in the bold, kind of the fourth paragraph of the page. These divine brain energies take expression in the Torah, which is God's Chachma Bin Adas, and its mitzvahs, which is God's will. So take a second, and there's an important shift here. And the shift is, we kind of spoke about this last night in our discussion, but the, I, the Torah is not just about knowing what to do, although that is important. It's not just instruction. Right? God needs, we need to know what to do, so God tells us, and that's why we study the Torah. And if I have my rabbi, I don't need to study the Torah because he'll tell me what to do. Or if I've been uh, raised with uh, knowing what to do or whatever it is, we're good. Right? But the Torah is much more than that. The Torah is not just about what to do. The Torah itself is, a, is, is learning God's wisdom. There's such an emphasis in Judaism on Torah study. You have Jews, by the way, that dedicate, and this is controversial perhaps, but they dedicate their whole lives to Torah. You have a rabbi. There's a famous rabbi in Israel, a fascinating person. I think he's in his 90s. His name is Rabbi Chaim Kanievsky. He is one of those rabbis that he's highly revered because he knows everything. You know, he's, he's the type of guy who you could take a pin 
stick it through a volume of Talmud and we'll tell you which words it, that pin went through because he knows it all. It's all there, it's all at the tip of his fingers. But this is a person who never left school, who never left yeshiva, just stayed. Stayed and stayed and now he became a leader in his own right. But in, in Judaism, we put a strong emphasis on Torah study and we value Torah study to the point that even if what we're learning doesn't seem relevant practically, Right, David, you see, uh, you're going through Rambam, right? Through the daily Rambam study. Some of it is relevant. Some of it is not relevant, right? And we still make a point to study it because every idea in Torah is not just about instruction, but it's also represent, it also represents a value because it's God's brain. It's God's wisdom. Where are we going to experience God most? Where are you going to experience the human most in their brain? Right? You have an intellectual conversation with them. Where are you going to experience God most in his brain? And that's the Torah. Now, next time you have your Torah study session, it could be right now, by the way, because we're studying Torah. But next time you have your Torah study session, which it's, it's important to do every day. It's important to study Torah daily, to learn about God daily. Right? Spouses need to connect on a daily basis. Or on an often basis, I'm not going to give a time. That's not my job. A time uh, sequence, but it would be important that spouses connect often. It would be important that we connect with God often as well. We go on a date with God. We pray to Him. That's Him listening to us, and we study the Torah. That's us listening to Him. Think about that next time you study the Torah. And when we say the Torah, by the way, we don't necessarily mean the Bible itself, but any element of Torah. That could be um, the prophets, it could be the Talmud, it could be, it could be any, the laws of the Torah, the philosophy of the Torah, whatever it might be. But think about that for a moment. Next time you do a mitzvah, by the way, because the Torah is explaining how to do the mitzvahs, it's part of the same deal, like we said over here. It's God's desires. Think about that. I am connecting to what God desires. I'm connecting to God's values. Think about how much meaning that's going to give to our observance. Because our observance is no longer, I'm just doing a tradition that my parents have been doing and that my grandparents have been doing, that my great-grandparents have been doing, which is important and that is sentimental and that is meaningful, but it's even more than that. This itself is a relationship, a very strong and, and, and meaningful relationship. Give me a second here. This eventually becomes the life force to the entire world. The world is dependent on Torah study. The world is dependent on mitzvahs. Because just like you are dependent on your brain, and by the way, it's not always apparent. You don't always see the connection between your toenail and your brain. But if God forbid somebody's brain leaves, they're dead. No more toenails. Those toenails aren't going to grow anymore, right? Even though we don't see the connection, the connection's there. So the world is going to get its divine energy, its relationship with God, 
ultimately through the brain, through us studying Torah. Which means a healthy person needs a healthy brain. And what we feed, we have to be careful of what we feed our brains, right? If somebody were to tell us that a certain food would be unhealthy for your brain, we would refrain from it. Or at least we would understand that we should refrain from it, right? If it's Diet Coke, we're not refraining from it. But we'll understand that we should refrain from it, right? At least we'll have faith in the concept. <laughs> because we have, what we feed our brains is, is a big deal. Um, what we connect to, a healthy brain is a healthy body. Similarly, studying Torah, which is connecting to God's brain, at least metaphorically, creates a healthy world. Very often, we get worried about, you know, the world is shaken up right now. The world is crazy right now. Um, it, it doesn't matter, I, and I'm not getting political. It doesn't matter what side of the uh, political spectrum or social spectrum you may find yourself. I think everybody agrees that the world is just bonkers right now <laughs> on some level. There's just a lot. socially, politically, um, safety, anti-Semitism, security. There, there's just so much going on. And we can try to solve each individual issue, and we should. We can't just stand back and, and, be, and ignore. But it's important to never forget about the root of the issue. A healthy world needs a healthy brain. Right? The world is the body to contain contain God. So the brain of the world is God's Torah. If we want a healthier world. We need a healthy brain. We need to connect to the Torah. We have to study the Torah. We have to have clarity in what life is all about. Think about the impact that you're having when you study the Torah or where you do mitzvahs. Think about the impact that it's having on you and your relationship with God. But think about the impact that it's having on the world as well. There was a rabbi in Los Angeles. Was a, I actually never met him before, but he was supposed to, supposed to be a very special person, scholarly person. And he led a Talmud class for beginners he was in his he was in his late 60s and he led a talmud class for beginners this guy apparently was very fluent in the talmud and he to him the, the value of torah study was so strong and he believed it he really believed it he was talking with his group it was several days before rosh hashanah Unfortunately, this rabbi passed away from COVID at the way beginning of COVID, like around Passover time. It was very sad. Um, he was talking to his group of students. It was about 10 guys. Also uh, middle-aged people. He was talking about, and they were learning how to study Talmud, getting the skills. And it was for beginners. It was a beginner's course. And he tells them, take your notebook to synagogue with you on Rosh Hashanah. Said, Rabbi, we're not studying Talmud on Rosh Hashanah. We're busy in synagogue praying and hearing the shofar. Why would we take our notebook? So he said, Rosh Hashanah is Judgment Day. 
Take your notebook. Remind God the impact that you've had on the world, the Torah study you've been doing. Take it with you. You have something to show God. You have something to show for yourself. You could show God that I'm trying to make this world a better place. I'm doing my role here. I'm trying to get clarity, God, in what your values are. I thought it was a beautiful story. This guy, this guy meant it. He really believed it. You know, sometimes we hear a lot, we, you know, the Torah and we just, oh, that's a good one, right? That's inspiring. But this guy really, this guy was for real. He really believed it. It was, it was, it was, uh, it was fascinating. Take a look on 658. We have, now when we talk about this revelation of God, as or the way we experience God, and it's through the Torah, there's a, another name used in Kabbalah for this revelation, for this experience. There's actually several names throughout Talmudic and Kabbalistic literature, and they all mean the same thing, but they're just used in different contexts. So sometimes the way they're going to refer, there's, there's one way to refer to God's divine presence in Aramaic, in Talmudic language. There's another way to refer to it in Midrashic language, another way to refer to God in Kabbalistic language. And they're all talking about the same thing. They just refer to God differently. Uh, take a look at the bottom of 658, all the way in the bottom. And this phase two source of powers that have emerged from the blessed infinite life but haven't entered the universe is referred to as top of 659 by various names in the Zohar. The manifest world, the revealed world. Right? When we have a relationship with God that is experiential, that's the revealed world. And then... <coughs> Bless, bless me. <laughs> as we, <laughs> as we experience, as we, ex, as we, our, our faith in God beyond our subjective experiences, it's called the hidden world. World means a perspective, a paradigm. It's also the feminine imagery of matron, mother, the lower world, and the shekhinah, as in the phrase, I will rest shekhanti among them. That's the biblical language. Right, who, who, who here has heard the term Shekhinah? Right, Shekhinah means the divine presence rest, resting, the resting of the divine presence. And where does the divine presence rest? In the brain, in the Torah. And we call it Shekhinah, which, by the way, is interesting to note. I, I, one of the questions I get all the time is why do we refer to God in the masculine as a he? Why not refer to him, to her, <laughs> as a she? Why, why are we maleizing? Is that a word? John, is that a word? Why are we maleizing? I, I think it's gender something. Genderizing. Or, or ma mascul mas masculating. Or I, even, nah, yeah. Really, I don't yeah, yeah. I don't know. Genderizing? I don't know. Why it's are we? It's not tenderizing. God is genderless. Um, he has to be genderless because he's imageless. If he wasn't imageless, we couldn't serve him. That would be idolatry. Right? He's imageless, which means he has no gender. Why are we referring to God as he? This is the question we get all the time. 
And the truth is, people don't know this always, but we do sometimes refer to God as she. It's contextual. There's a, you know, a, a relationship with God is contextual. There's different types of the relationship. Rosh Hashanah is coming up, right? We're going to sing Avinu Malkeinu. What does Avinu Malkeinu mean? Our God, our King. Right. Well, Avinu is our Father. Our Father, our King. Right? Is God a Father or is God a King? Which one is he? The answer is yes. But there's a context. In certain contexts, we'll refer to God as our Father. In certain contexts... We'll refer to God as our king, right? From the soul's perspective, he's the father. From the body's perspective, he's a king. If you look over here on the top of 659, there's times we'll refer to him as a mother, right? There's a context to the relationship. I was just thinking Lachadodi. Lachadodi is a beautiful example, right? As God manifests himself, as God becomes experiential, as he becomes not just something we believe in, but actually uh, something we can experience pleasantly, we all of a sudden refer to him in the feminine. I'm going to tell you a crazy story. But it really is a crazy story. So it's, it's a you're gonna it's a wacky story. I was deciding whether I should say it or not, but I'm gonna say it because I I think it's pretty wacky. Um, again, there's there's different levels of of revelation, different levels of experience, which means there's different levels of shechina. So there was a Jew visiting Rabbi Shneer Zalman of Liadi, the author of the Tanya, the Alter Rebbe. And he had a private audience with the Alter Rebbe. But people were kind of surprised. He didn't look like the classic Hasidic Jew. What's he doing with the Alter Rebbe? And why is the Alter Rebbe giving him so much time? You know, when people went to the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, would have meetings and dollars, you know, the Rebbe met with pretty much anybody. You didn't even have to be Jewish. And anybody would wait in line. And it was, it's uncommon. It was uncommon for a rabbi to do that, for a Hasidic rabbi to do that. And it wasn't, I guess it wasn't the norm in the days of Rabbi Shneur Zalman Aliyadi 200 years ago. This guy is dressed like a German Jew, like a secular Jew. Does not seem at all observant or interested. I guess his demeanor didn't give that off. And he has a very long meeting, a personal meeting in Rabbi Shneur Zalman's office. So Hasidim were very curious. What could they be possibly talking about? And why is the Alter Rebbe giving him so much attention? So they press, they press their ear to the door because they want to find out what's going on. And they are eavesdropping. And they hear this German fellow ask a very inappropriate and bizarre question. Here's his question. He says, Rabbi, I adore my wife. I love my wife. She's beautiful. And we have a great marriage. But there's a, another lady 
who I have my eyes on? Should I get rid of my wife and go for her or should I just be happy with what I have? Bizarre question. And if you were to ask any rabbi, most people wouldn't ask that question to a rabbi. You, you, know, you know the answer, <laughs> right? The answer is, you know, watch where you look, take your glasses off and behave, behave yourself. The chassidim were shocked. They were shocked that Rabbi Shner Zalman, who was a very busy, by the way, just to give context to this story, the reason why he wrote the book Tanya was because he didn't have time to answer people's spiritual questions. He was too busy. Too many people wanted advice. So he wrote it in a book, and that's what the Tanya is. Despite how busy he was, he was giving this fellow so much of his time for such a very straightforward question. The answer is no, move on, right? And it, why are they spending so much time? The meeting is over. They quickly disperse. The guy leaves. And they ask Rabbi Shneur Zalman, what just went on? We have to know. And it busted. We were eavesdropping. What just, what just happened? The Alter Rebbe revealed to them something unexpected. This fellow was not who he appeared to be. He was someone else. He was actually a hidden Sadiq. It's known that there are 36 at any given time in throughout history, throughout existence, there are 36 hidden Sadiqs. person who has totally internalized the divine soul, who sees life from a very different paradigm than we do, the paradigm from which we would like to have faith in, that's where they have total clarity in, right? They don't have the struggles we have, the challenges we have, the exposure we have. This guy was a hidden tzaddik. Nobody knew it because of the way he was dressed. And these hidden tzaddiks have their job, have their mission in the world. They're not actually supposed to reveal themselves. And the Alter Rebbe said what he really was asking was he had a relationship with the divine Shekhinah, which he referred euphemistically as his wife. I'm connecting to the divine Shekhinah, to the divine presence, to God, right? my beloved, my wife but on a very relatively superficial level, relative for this individual. I think it's time I move up to the next level. Should I? Right? Because again, the Shekhinah is euphemistic for, a, for a, a female wife, spouse. Should I move up to the next level, find a different wife? Should I connect to God on a deeper level? Or am I going to lose what I've had and not get anywhere? To which the altar ever said, be happy with your lot, stick with what you have. There's a lot to think about in this story. <laughs> but one thing that we see in this story is that there's more than what meets the eye. There's so much more than what meets the eye. And for a tzaddik, they could see it. For us, we have to believe it. One of the reasons why we blow the shofar on Rosh Hashanah is to remind ourselves that there's so much that we see. There's so much that we don't see. We have to, and we have to close the, our eyes and we have to listen. 
not about seeing, right? When we say the Shema, hear, O Israel, listen, what do we do? We close our eyes. Comes to the shofar, it's not about what we see, it's deeper than that. The connection is much deeper than vision. Again, uh, envision all this as we're studying Torah, what's going on? Connecting to the Shekhinah, to the divine presence, to the manifest world, to God as he reveals himself. Now, how many of us actually experience this? <laughs> and there's a good reason why. Take a look on page 661. Top of 661. You see it? It's impossible for the world to withstand and receive the light of the Shekhinah itself the divine presence itself, in a way that the Shekhinah's life can rest and be really enmeshed in them without a filter to hide and conceal the light of the Shekhinah from them. Right? The Tzimtzum. God has to hide himself, even though he's revealing himself, so that they don't, in the presence of their unfiltered source, lose their individual identity completely. If we get overwhelmed and lose our identity from God revealing himself, then him really revealing himself is counterproductive. So then what other option have we other than for God to hide himself and for us to go out of our way to find him? And what is the, what is the garment with which God wears to hide himself so we don't recognize him? That's the Torah. The Torah is a garment. Think about it. And the mitzvahs are garments. Think about it. Any mitzvah you do, most mitzvahs we do are something physical or something material. Sharon, you posted something on the chat today, this morning, that was brilliant. Right? Yeah, I really enjoyed it. It's from Tanya. And it, it is. Just, you can substitute it with Dan Cook too. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I don't, if you guys, did you guys get a chance to watch that video? It was like a one minute clip about a professor. Uh, sorry, about a. Uh, a group of alumni who came to visit their college professor. The professor was getting old and they wanted to chat with him. They had a good relationship with him. He offers them coffee and he puts out various coffee mugs, all different types. Some are glass, some are crystal, some are ceramic, some are pretty, some are ugly, some are big, some are small. And he notices everybody rushing for the nice ones. And afterwards, he says to them, I noticed that many of you grabbed the nicest mugs and are looking and comparing your mugs for each other. You guys all have the same bitter coffee. It's all the same. It's the same bitter coffee. In fact, you don't care about the mug. You're going to drink the coffee. You're going to put the mug away. It doesn't even matter. The coffee is what you want. The mug is just the tool to get the coffee. And he was trying to impart this lesson in their life to realize um, what is the priority and what's secondary in life? And, and this is exactly what we're saying, that the Torah talks about physical things, material things. Many of the stories are real stories that happen. And many of the halachot, the laws, pertain to our physical world. 
The mitzvah observance pertains to our physical world, how to practically do things. But again, these are all garments for something much deeper. God hides himself in these physical garments so that he can become more relatable. We gave an analogy. There was an analogy we gave in chapter four of Tanya, all the way in chapter four, where we mentioned how the Torah is a garment for God. If you want to connect to God, you have to. If we just connect to him himself, it's overwhelming. So he dresses himself up. So he says, imagine you were to give the king a hug. You had the opportunity to embrace the king. You had that relationship with the king. It's unusual to have a relationship that, like that with the king, but we do. Usually with kings, there's reverence. But with our king, there's also a strong relationship. We get to embrace him. But he's wearing a robe. Is anybody going to say, you're not embracing him? He's wearing a robe. No, I'm still embracing him. He's wearing two robes. He's wearing a thousand robes. It doesn't matter. The king is still there and you're embracing him. Right? Look at it this way. If somebody went to give the president a hug, Secret Service doesn't care how thick the president's bulletproof vest is or how many suits they're wearing. They're taking you out. It doesn't matter. You're giving him a hug. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. So God is hidden in the Torah. And when we read the Torah, what we experience is very human issues, very human situations. But what's really happening is God is hidden in there. And by the way, that's the reason why we study the inner dimensions of the Torah. And that's kind of where the Hasidic philosophy came into being, is to remind us and to reveal to us that although what may, the Torah may seem physical and practical, it really is spiritual. It's just a garment for something much deeper. Okay, I have a question. Yeah. So Kabbalah, what is that? Is that Torah? So yeah, that, that's, that's an example of a deeper dimension of the Torah. But probably a deeper, gar let's say a, a, a garment that's much closer to the skin than perhaps a uh, more practical part of Torah. So they say if you study it and you're not ready to study it, you go mad. So is, and that's hidden. A lot of stuff of the Kabbalah is hidden. So is it to also prevent us from going mad? That Hashem also hides himself in the Torah? So it's a good question. What, one of the, one of the uh, things that the Tanya does is it kind of elucidates Kabbalah. You know, we I reference know. a lot of Kabbalistic teachings and it kind of elucidates the Kabbalah so we can That's learn thing, what's relevant in practice. Brings it to the foreground. What does it elucidate? Like, as in, like, you become, you're already psychotic. <laughs> it, no, elucidate in terms of making it more clear, making it relevant to us. So, so it, it brings it, to, it grounds it and it brings it yeah. to reality so that you can understand it. Exactly. Exactly. You know, we, we live in a time where the garments are so thick, we need depth. We yeah. need to believe and feel and see that there's so much that is beyond the surface of what our eyes tell us. Is it is it the language that makes it more uh, a, us to be able to understand? Is that is that what you mean by elucidate? It kind of simplifies it a little bit or takes the takes the mystery out of it it 
I, I would say it's not only linguistically, it's uh, conceptually, it, it puts it into a context, in context so, of our relationship with God. So if you study the Tanya, then 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 you you be able to conceptualize the um, the Kabbalah because you'll know what it's where it's going to and where it comes from. Exactly. In other words, well, what the Tanya is doing, it's really quoting ideas throughout various elements of the Torah, whether it be the Bible, whether it be the Talmud, whether it be Kabbalah, and yeah. it's giving it context. It, it's explaining it in the context of our relationship with God. Okay. But then where is this Kabbalah? Where is it? Where you're saying, that there, well, there's books. There's so is it people, the people's interpretation of the Torah that gives you the Kabbalah? Or is it, I don't, I don't know who wrote it, where it comes from. So it, it, it tradition from Sinai. Just from Sinai. Yeah, exactly. Actually, the word Kabbalah means tradition or acceptance, something that has been received. So, so is it the oral Torah? Is that what you're saying? It, it's it's an element of the oral Torah. Yeah. So the Mishnah, no, the Mishnah. Well, it, it so it's not the, the it's 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 an element. That's a good question. It's the Mishnah is a facet of the oral Torah. Yeah. The Kabbalah is as well. In fact, many one of, one of the main authors of the Mishnah authored one of the main authors uh, authored one of the main books of Kabbalah, the Zohar. So, so is it? Uh, it's complementary to each other, and it's just more detailed to give a depth. Exactly. It's it's, in a, and it's a, it's a whole new dimension. It's a it's a spirit it's a, it's the spiritual dimension of Torah. Okay. The spiritual. Is that why there's mystery surrounding it? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Tanya seems like demystified Kabbalah. Kind of. It yeah. takes the good parts out and it takes all the details out and makes it flat. Right, it's, it's kind of what you need to know in your relationship with God. Should, should I stop recording? Uh, yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah, sorry about this.